Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of yeah. Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast as advertised last week. I am Ben Lindbergh, writer for TheRinger.com, joined by Jason Concepcion and also Milton the Corgi. Hi, Jason. Hi, Milton. Hello. Milton, Milton's not going to say anything. Milton, speak. <laughs> speak. You never know. Speak. <laughs> yeah, he's just looking at me like, yeah. what? He'll do what he wants. Yeah, he, he might does. speak up later. That's how yeah. he does. Does he have any favorite games? Does he show any interest in games? He, he does not care about games at all. <laughs> not in the least. He likes to um, he likes to play a game called Hiders, which is like hide and go seek, which sure. you, which you trigger by uh, taking a pillow off of either the bed or the couch, and uh-huh. um, he knows that that's a signal for the game to begin and use the pillow to block him so he won't chase the person <laughs> who hides and he bites the pillow, um, and then when you take the pillow away, he goes and looks for the person. And then, uh-huh. so so when he he knows that when you pick up a pillow and approach him, uh, the game is on. He gets very excited. Okay. That could be a Steam game or something. Sure. I could see us adapting that. Sure. So, so, as always, we have a video game writer on the podcast in you. But today, we are also <laughs> going to have another guest who writes for video games, has written a few more video games than you have, but maybe you'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. So, Twalt Williams, he has a book out called Significant Zero, Heroes, yeah. Villains, and the Fight for Art and Soul in Video Games. We had originally planned to package this in our NBA 2K pod, but we kept talking to him. He was yeah. a good guest, so we wanted to split this out on its own. And we'll get to him in just a minute. I just wanted to mention there was a, a whole Twitter thread that went pretty big over the weekend. It was by the designer, programmer, Charles Randall, who's worked at Ubisoft, Bioware. And he wrote something about how video game developers are just not candid about development. And he blamed that on toxic gamer culture, which uh, we talked about with Justin Charity last week. But basically his contention was that developers talk to each other about games and other people in the industry, but they don't like to say stuff online because anything they say might be misconstrued or gamers will jump all over them or will be overly critical and harsh about any admissions that that they put out there publicly. Like there was a a really great thread recently that was just a, a collection of like little tips and tricks that game developers have tried in games. Like sometimes they'll kind of put their finger on the scale a little bit yeah. to make the game more entertaining in certain ways. And my reaction to that was, wow, this is cool. This is clever. I want to know all this behind the scenes tricks of the trade type stuff. But some people reacted and said, oh, they're manipulating the games and this is unfair. And often you get kind of, you know, why didn't they just make this better? Why is this not better? Or why did they just not add this feature or this mode? And so Randall was saying that that's why developers, people who work in games don't speak out more often. And so I'm glad that Walt wrote this book to kind of provide a little behind the scenes glimpse. And both this and Jason Trier's book, Blood, Sweat and Pixels, which we talked to him a couple of weeks ago, I think have given me a window into game development now where I have a hard time criticizing anything (laughs) that's in a game because I just can't believe that games exist after reading these books. I feel the same way. It's such a fraught and extremely strenuous process that's complicated and has so many moving parts. Uh, And oftentimes no one is sure if the game works until the very, very, very end of the process, which is just Uh wild crazy to me. Um, Yeah, it's it's amazing that games work. I think... In general, you know, like games because of their interactivity just foster, and we talked about this with charity, it's just like foster a a kind of selfishness that is like um, that can come across as toxic. And I Mm -hmm. think also just like the natural tendency of anyone who's marketing a product to say things about their product, for whatever reason, gamers hold on to those details in a way Mm -hmm. that's extremely – almost like it's territorial you know you could look at the the lead up to no man's sky as a great right uh, great example of this although like certainly on the on the end of the scale that like shades into i don't want to say deception because that's uncharitable but like uh saying stuff that you could 
fairly say the developer was probably sure would not get into the game, you know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, people do that about a lot of products. But when it comes to games, you know, it's there, there's um, the people who communicate about this subject are doing so behind computers. There's an anonymity involved, which always, like, lowers the boundaries of – or lowers yeah. the, the, you know, the kind of, like – the boundaries of what is acceptable and what is unhinged. Um, mm-hmm. And so you're just going to get this like raised volume of, of communication that is kind yeah. of like endemic to the culture. Yeah. And games more than maybe any other medium, you just don't know what's going to be in the game as you're making it. Yeah. As you mentioned, you don't know if you're going to have time to finish things. Right. You don't know if it's going to be fun when you actually finish them. You just have no idea. And so, yeah. And so you want to build up some buzz and get people excited about your game, but you also have to be wary about what you say because you just don't want to overpromise and underdeliver and it's really or even or even tough. slightly promise. It's just like yeah. you know, if you say a thing if you say, oh, there's gonna be a, you know, twelve twelve person multiplayer in this and then it's ten. Right. <laughs> like gamers will fucking roast ro- will yeah. roast someone over that. Yeah. Um and it's all and it always seems to be like the spokesperson or one particular person who is the point person, the public-facing person uh, mm-hmm. in the process, not necessarily um, any human being that would have ostensibly had some sort of say in the in the mechanical structure of the game. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just an unfair process. And I understand what, you know, it's true. The yeah. tenor around games <laughs> is often just unhinged <laughs> and very loud. Yeah, which doesn't mean that we can't, critique games obviously there are fair critiques of games but just having read these more personal accounts of how games are made a you know whatever feature you don't like it's probably not the one developer you're singling out his or her fault Uh, these are often big teams and you know, maybe if the if the process was just a disaster, it might be someone's fault or there might be a failure from a, a planning perspective or resource management or something. But it's probably not just that the artist was bad or something like that. Like when Mass Effect Andromeda came out and people were singling out individual developers for the right. lousy animations. Right. And then and then you find out, you know, Jason's big story about it right. and it was how a systemic was problem just, yeah, that was right. like the entire process was <laughs> rotten from the inside out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I think the thing that is conveyed most clearly by these books is just that these people are working really hard. <laughs> they care a lot. And so the critique that someone is not putting the effort in or just got lazy or something maybe there are cases here and there where that's true but for the most part i think it just comes down to the crunch that we talked to jason about that we're about to talk to walt about and there's just only so much you can fit into a game without caring killing yourself so yeah so it's given me a, a greater perspective i think on how the industry works which uh you didn't need because you're you're embedded in the industry now and uh, you know all the ins and outs after your 2K experience. Yes, I'm an expert now. <laughs> all right, so let's bring on Walt. Yeah. So we are joined now by veteran video game writer and rookie first-time book author, Walt Williams, whose book is out now. It's called Significant Zero, Heroes, Villains, and the Fight for Art and Soul in Video Games. Hey, Walt. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Hey. Hi. It's going well. So your story, I don't know if it's the typical story of someone who has been in this industry and, and worked their way up the way that you did, but I think one of the things that might surprise people when they read this at first is just how little familiarity you had with video games when you started this climb. You didn't own consoles at the time that you applied for a job and that came up in your interview and you just kind of talked through it and uh, just bullied your way into a job almost and it worked out well for you. But can you talk about some of the ways that that either helped you or held you back? Because I would imagine that there are a lot of people in this industry who want to get into video games because they are obsessive video game players. And 
you had some experience, but that was not completely the case with you. Yeah. I mean, it started off with me where I grew up playing video games and I played them all through college. And like you said, when I applied for this job, I didn't have any consoles because I had this mindset that, well, I'm out of college. I have to get a real job now. I need to grow up, be an adult. There's no time for playing video games anymore. So I had sold them off uh, when I moved up to New York uh, looking to start a career. And what I found was very interesting, you have to realize that the industry that I came into back around 2005 is different from the industry today. Video games now are kind of, it's kind of become the new film school where you have, like you said, all these kids who are wanting to get into it. And there are a lot of college programs that are now built around it. Back at the time, there were some of those. You had like Digitech, uh, Guildhall, but it wasn't as pervasive uh, of an educational thing. So a lot of the people that I had come in to work with at that time were also kind of like me where they had stumbled into this. I had gone up to New York looking to be a writer and found myself uh, without a job, uh, not making any headway in that direction. And I met a guy at a bar who uh, happened to have attended the same college I did, Bailey University. And he was the hiring manager for Take Two, which is this umbrella a company that owns Rockstar and 2K Games, two video game publishers. And he had said, hey, you know, send me your resume. We have some entry-level positions. Maybe there's something that works for you. And so for me, I was thinking, hey, this will just be a nice thing that I can do uh, to help pay the bills until my writing career takes off. I wasn't mm -hmm. going in necessarily thinking, this is going to be the path that I take to my ultimate career. Yeah. Um, and so when I got in there, the idea of like not having consoles or not playing a lot of video games at that current point in my life, it didn't seem terribly daunting uh, or out of the ordinary because this was going to be uh, kind of a production assistant kind of job. So it seemed to me. Uh, but when I got in, I began to, you know, see the producers and the people who had been doing this for years. And, and a lot of them came like some of them came up through film. One of them was a tuba major. Uh, <laughs> one had spent uh, some time in law school and kind of decided he didn't want to do that. Uh, I had a, uh, one of my producers I eventually worked with was, had, had he was had been a few months away from getting his PhD in and what he, he had been crafting carbon nanotubes oh. uh -huh. and just one day woke up and said, I don't want to do this. I want to work in video games and just walked away from all of that and got a job in QA and worked his way up to being a producer. It's it's a it's an interesting industry in that sense where, especially on the publishing side, you know, if you're not a programmer, if you're not getting into the code or working with engines and art, you don't necessarily need a specific um, training uh, in, a, in a skill. You can have simply the passion and uh, the understanding of management and how to work within these systems and work with artists. And you can find a place for yourself in video games. And that's where I came into it back in around 2005, just this little kid, uh, I say little, I think I was 23, uh, this young kid who just wanted to be a writer and thought video games were going to be fun and interesting, kind of a small little divergent path for a little bit. And what ultimately happened is they discovered uh, that I could write. And so I began getting uh, tasks that had me working on the narrative on games uh, and working with developers hand on. And I discovered that there was so much more to writing video games than I had ever really felt in writing screenplays or short stories or anything like that, that the possibilities of writing in that uh, medium really excited me. And so ultimately, as I got further and further into it, I decided this is something I really want to pursue for the long term and ultimately be a video game writer. Mm -hmm. as, as you mentioned, it can be a, a benefit to be familiar with a series that you're writing for, but it can also be kind of constricting because you fall into this fandom where you know what the player is expecting because you are expecting the same thing based on your own experience with that game, with that series. And so you end up trying to deliver more of the same or at least not breaking away from the formula in any significant way. Whereas if you're coming to this fresh, then you're going to have fresh ideas, which can end up being better for the product. Exactly. No, I think there is a certain aspect of the way I came into the industry and the way other people come into the industry uh, of having some knowledge, but not being fully trained and focused on how things are done mm -hmm. that allows you to have a certain naivety uh, about the situation 
uh, that can sometimes work to your advantage because the way I always felt is, well, I'm too stupid to know better. I'm too stupid to know that uh, this should be impossible. So when I was, I, you know, when you're approaching a situation with that kind of mindset, you're looking at, you're looking for solutions. You're not already thinking there's no way this can work. And you begin coming at something from a different angle. And a lot of that carries over to when you're working on a particular franchise or a particular type of game. Like for me with a military shooter, uh, I, I worked on a game called Spec Ops The Line that came out in 2012 that was a military shooter. And I had played a couple in particular when the project had started, but they had never really been the type of games that I had been drawn to as a player. I, I enjoyed playing uh, more narrative-focused games as I had been growing up. And I'd spent a little bit of time in the military and ultimately it didn't work out. And that certainly colored my uh, opinion of the military shooter genre. But coming into working on that game, instead of thinking, oh, well, I know how these games are supposed to be made. I know what players are going to want. I went in thinking, I don't really play these games. So what would be the military shooter that someone like me would want to play? Mm -hmm. And allowed me to come into that process from a different angle, which is exactly what the company was looking for. Because at the time, and even now, there's so many uh, high-quality military shooters out there that to attempt to enter the genre at this point was something brand new, you would have to find that new angle. You would have to find a niche that would define you and let you stand on your own next to these other games like Call of Duty or Battlefield. Uh, and for us, that was that was the narrative angle, the the internal psychological angle of what it would be like for these characters to actually be going through the type of uh, intense combat situations you find yourself in a video game. Uh, you're you grew up in the South in Louisiana, and where uh, you know the church and the military are kind of these cultural institutions. And you dabbled with, um, or more than dabbled, really, you were in the Air Force for a hot second, had a cup of coffee yes. in the Air Force. How did that? How did that experience uh, influence Spec Ops: The Line, for instance? So there was there's a specific moment that I remember during my time in the military where I was at my field training and. I, we were watching, a soldier had come to give a talk to uh, all of the, all of us cadets who were uh, at training during that summer. And he well, was a bomber in uh, one of the, uh, one of the planes I can, unfortunately I can't remember the type, but he had brought combat footage, uh, the camera, the nighttime, night footage camera from, from this mission where he, they're, they're strafing uh, these combatants, I think it was in Afghanistan. Uh, on the ground and we're watching from the plane at night so everything's in night vision and it was this weird kind of moment where you can hear them telling jokes on the camera the pilots and the gunners and the navigators which makes sense I mean you know when you're in combat in particular and you're taking part in it you know I can understand a certain level of gallows humor that kicks in there but the we're hearing the jokes on the videotape and the people around me are laughing and it kind of struck me as a weird thing because as I was watching I was I begin to realize, you know, we're watching footage of people dying, even if the people are just dots on a screen uh, seen from all the way up in the sky, just white on black dots. This is still uh, a really morbid piece of footage that we're watching here. And and that was a very eye opening moment for me and kind of carried over into my feeling about military shooters as I was coming out of training and still in the Air Force and then going into working in video games, that it, it, it felt very strange for us to be taking part when we play these games, where even if we're just pretending to shoot another person and kill them, we're still seeing it solely as a very fun, lively, energetic thing for something that were we to experience in our day-to-day -day lives, especially up close, face-to-face, uh, would be an extremely traumatizing and um, memorable event. Whereas in a video game, we often, you know, uh, defeat an enemy and move on and, mm -hmm. and don't give that character a second thought. Coming out of a military family where I grew up where my father was in the Air Force, my brother and my sister were in the Air Force, and many of my friends who I'd uh, been in the Air Force with who went on to continue to serve when I did not, seeing them as soldiers and hearing their stories of going, particularly uh, when we went to war in Iraq, those friends who went to Iraq and Afghanistan and came back and seeing how they were so affected by that experience and, and the respect that I have for people who choose to be in the military, especially since I can very clearly see that, you know, it's something that wasn't for me, but I know, you know, it was something 
that really fit many of the people that I care about deeply. It seemed almost disrespectful for us to treat war in such a lighthearted way in video games. So both of these things really came together as we were working on Spec Ops for me to want to make a game that treated the act of combat and what it's like to go through it in a more realistic way, if only because I felt like, you know, in a lot of ways our soldiers deserved that much for us to just not treat combat as if it was, for lack of a better word, a game. Mm -hmm. And for people who aren't that familiar with how writing for video games works, you lay this out in the book, the three types of writer, the creative director, the narrative designer, the script writer. Can you talk about how, in theory, those three types work together and in practice, how they can clash at times? Yeah. I mean, so the three basic levels, a writer is your lowest uh, level kind of writer where you're brought in and you're a lot of times you can be uh, like a hired gun. So you're coming in to a product that uh, a production that already has uh, a concept, uh, sets, levels, characters, basic story beats mapped out. And it's your job to take a lot of disparate pieces or ideas that haven't been fully fleshed out and write something on top of them that makes it feel as if everything came together organically by one unified vision. You're basically uh, sticking everything together with duct tape and words. That's all you have. Um, and you don't ultimately have a lot of power to change things. It's more about digesting what the team has done and trying to make something coherent out of it rather than coming in and saying, well, this would be better or this would be better. Let's do this. Whereas a narrative designer is this kind of middle ground uh, narrative worker on a game who's going to be able to write things, but they're specifically going to be designing missions and things that the player is going to be experiencing in the game. So they can have some control over the narrative and they're going to be guiding the player's actions and emotions more to lead them down that path. Um, and, and the third one is creative director. This is essentially uh, the person in charge of the entire production. Sometimes a creative director is a writer. Sometimes they're not a writer. Regardless, they're going to have the final say over what themes are, what the story is, what story beats you're going to have. And if they're a writer, then that's great because then you're getting a game where uh, the person who has final say on things is also writing the story to line things up. So there's not going to be any fighting between that. But if it's not a writer, then you get into a, a situation where these three roles begin to kind of clash a little bit where a writer might be coming in. Uh, seeing a bunch of things that don't add up to a coherent story and trying to convince a team, well, hey, you know, if we tweak this or if we do this, ultimately the project as a whole is going to be better for it. But a creative director might be thinking, yeah, I, I can see that, but we really, really like this particular idea. We really, really like this particular theme. And ultimately we think the gameplay is fun and people might not really care that much mm -hmm. if all of this stuff doesn't jive because it's still going to be fun to play, and that's ultimately uh, what matters. And, and a creative director who thinks that is not wrong. That's definitely something to keep in mind. Like, a great story has never made a bad game into a huge financial success, and a bad story has never made a great game into a failure. A great story can elevate a good game to a great game, and it can take a great game into something legendary, but entirely on its own. It's never really affected uh, how a game is going to perform. So you can't blame creative directors for necessarily thinking that way. The level designer in the middle, he gets to walk this wonderful line where um, he's going to be working with a creative director and with a writer and kind of pushing back one way or the other, but still ultimately is going to have control over the little section that they're working on, whether it's one whole level or going in and working certain narrative beats into all of the levels, doing environmental storytelling, things like that. But it's more of it can almost be more of a subversive role where they're given the orders and things that they have to do from a creative director and they're taking the words and things that are being written by the writer and then putting them together in such a way that meets both sides uh, desires, but really creates something that is unique to what the narrative designer wanted to put in the game. Um, Ultimately, you want a project where all three of these roles work together uh, in sync along with the artists and the normal level designers and the programmers and everything. And when you do, you end up with a game that honestly can just can be magical. It becomes uh, something better than the sum of its parts. 
Um, but, you know, sometimes things don't jive and you end up with a game that feels, you know, the, you hear the phrase designed by committee. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you end up with a game that feels kind of like that, where you're like, there's goodness here. But ultimately, I'm you're seeing the compromises more than you're seeing the victories. Um, there's recently there's been a slight uproar about your comments on the crunch, which is a for people who don't know, is a. Uh, a thing where during the development of a video game, people will put in long hours in order to finish a video game. Um, you would kind of seemingly come out in favor of it, or at least from a... This is an interesting uh, thing, because I I kind of feel like there's a micro and a macro level to this, the crunch. If someone <laughs> yeah. loves what they do, it's hard to tell them not to do it in the way that they want to. From the Mac, that's on the individual level. From the macro level, yes, it's unhealthy to ask people to put in 20 <laughs> hours a day. So I think those you can hold those two things independent of each other and understand them. Uh, it, do you want to clarify that at all? And then, I mean, this is a fascinating topic, I think, yeah. to talk about. Well, like, I mean, I, th- I think that you're absolutely right in how you're hitting that with the, the macro and the micro yeah. level. I think where a lot of the issue from uh, the excerpt came about is that it got published with uh, without a lack of context around it. Right. And when I wrote it, it was certainly, you know, it comes at a certain part in the book where you are, it, it feels very natural to come into it. It's not just an out of the blue thing. Right. It was never written to be a standalone essay. Right. So to be fair to everyone who were who was upset about it or disagreed with it, um, the way they read it, I think they had a perfectly valid response to how it was presented outside of the book. And I certainly am not upset about that because I even I went back and read it. I was like, mm, yeah, when this doesn't have... 12 chapters in front of it. Um, right. It, right. Without the context. It's a, it's it's, a, right. Exactly. It's very, it's a little combative. Um, but for me, what I was trying to get at with that particular excerpt is to the point that our industry has a complex relationship with crunch. And I was trying to illustrate that by being honest about my complex relationship with crunch. I am prone to working too much, uh, overworking, disappearing, into my work and letting my life and physical health suffer uh, for many different reasons. Uh, One of which is I do enjoy the rush of crunch. I like seeing work happen and come together quickly um, and efficiently uh, by just continuing to work nonstop until I break. There is, uh, for anyone who's ever worked at something creatively and struggled to see it come together, there is a rush when things finally begin to line up. And we all experience it in the creative field uh, because you're getting closer to creating that thing that you're envisioning in your mind. You're finally seeing it take form. And that in itself can be addictive. But on top of that, it I've never really taken for granted that there's going to be another game or there's going to be something else that I'm going to get to write. And I feel extremely lucky, especially as we were talking earlier, I walked into this industry with no real knowledge of how it functioned. So I feel very, very lucky that I've reached this point where I'm able to tell stories that I'm passionate about. They're going to reach a large audience. And I'm never certain that there's going to be another one after this. Maybe this is going to be the one that I really mess it up and it's done for me. So... As I'm getting into these projects, I'm thinking, you know, what, what if this is, what if this is the last thing I get to say? What if this is the last thing I put out there? What do I want it to be? What do I want the message to be? Do I want it to be as good as it possibly can be? And I erroneously convince myself that if I work harder, that if I crunch longer, that if I sacrifice more on my end, it will help, possibly help the game come out faster. It'll help the game be stronger. It'll help the team work better. And ultimately, I'm just hurting myself. And that's the thing that I now these days have to, now that I have a family uh, that I that I need to spend time with, you know, I need to be a part of. I have these people in my life. I cannot ignore them to disappear into my work the way that I used to. But the fact of the matter is, I would do that because in certain ways, crunch does work. If it didn't work, in, it, it, it doesn't work all the time. And it, when it does work, it certainly has a high cost. But if it didn't work at all, it would not be uh, something that we continue to struggle with as an industry. 
And that's where the complexity comes into it, is that you do have people who have benefited from crunch on the dev side, not just the management side. Sometimes there's this mindset that crunch is simply uh, an evil kind of 80s corporate villain kind of scheme to get developers to work more for free. And, and in my experience, that's never been the case. No one ever wants to crunch and no one ever plans it into the budget. It's a thing that happens and everyone bands together to try and get it done. Sometimes that benefits a team. And there are a lot of great games out there that we love that we call masterpieces that have been through massive amounts of crunch that no one talks about. So we just kind of ignore the fact that maybe that was a part of it and accept that, no, these people just did it really well on budget and on time when really that didn't happen. We, we, we all benefit from crunch both as gamers and as developers, whether we want to admit it or not. But the only way we're ever going to solve that is to admit how we all benefit from it and how we all contribute to it. And that's ultimately what the excerpt was trying to get across, that this is how it hurts me and this is how it's helped me. And I don't know how to feel about that. And we need to talk about it in that way, rather than just looking at it as this uh, demonized thing without figuring out how we're all continuing to keep the system functioning this way. Mm. And even at times when you weren't necessarily crunching, you still weren't leading a healthy lifestyle, I would say, even by your own admission. There is one part in the book where you just summarize your schedule for a day and everything you consume in that day. And it's like, wake up, pound Adderall and Red Bull, move on to donuts and hamburgers, back to more Adderall and Red Bull, sleeping pills at the end of the day to come down from the Adderall and Red Bull. So is that something that is endemic to the industry or is that something about your personality and just the way that you completely devoted yourself to your work at at certain points in your career? I think it's probably a mixture of both and also partly with uh, a generational thing. Um, Because when you think about, you know, energy drinks and, you know, Red Bull and Adderall and things that have come up uh, in regular use uh, amongst people of a certain age. Sugar-free Red Bull, to be fair. Yes, (laughs) sugar-free Red Bull. Because if you're going to chug four 12-ounce cans of Red Bull every day, you need to be health conscious. You need to watch what you're doing to your teeth. I think there is like a liter Uh, and a half of soda consumed in the car on the way to work as well. Well, you know, it's it's funny because you mentioned the, the southern part thing, and this is actually where the food came into that. You know, being from the south, in Louisiana in particular, food's a very big part of my life, and a very rich, delicious, flavorful food is a very big part of uh, kind of maintaining my mental health. And so when I'm in these crunch periods, I have a tendency to eat badly, not because it's the only thing available. I could eat better, but I'm eating better these very fatty, sugary, flavorful things because that's helping me maintain uh, the best possible mental health that I can because it's the one like very pure pleasure that I can bring myself while I'm focusing so much on this work. And so I'm eating a lot of things like steak, cheeseburgers, fried chicken, donuts, cookies, and not sleeping and walking two miles to an office And so still losing weight because even though I'm eating nothing but junk, I'm eating infrequently and in small amounts and just kind of grazing and continuing to go. I'm better now for what (laughs) it's worth. Um, I I actually, I I eat very healthy. I sleep a lot and I haven't crunched in a very long time. But I think there's something in about, there's something about our industry that takes it to a next level because here's the thing, overworking is a part of many, many jobs, uh, not just within yes, the game this industry, is, but yeah, yeah. This is one. Exactly. This is one of the things. I, not to cut you off, but this is one of the things with my issue with this particular issue. There's a guy working right now at a gas station who's probably put in 18 hours, 19 hours, and nobody's going to speak for that guy. And his job is not creative at all, and Absolutely. he doesn't. And he makes low five figures probably, and. Which is not to say that crunch is not an issue in in games and it should be examined and people should think about it. But, you know, as a person who who like loves my job and it's a creative job, if I want to like work 
for three days straight and sleep four hours, I'm an adult. And I don't think anybody should tell me not to do that. At the same time, like, I don't want anybody to live my life. Um, so I think there, was, there are many levels to this. At the same time, yes. like, I, you, we have to recognize that there's a whole class of people who make shit money working shit jobs who nobody is ever going to say, oh, these guys, uh, they should take a break. They should take a vacation. Nobody's ever going to fucking yeah. give a shit about that. No, absolutely. Like, my sister is a middle school teacher, and she works often 60 to 80 hours a week, six, seven days a week. And she read the excerpt and saw the reaction. And her response was, do these people not realize we're all doing this? Mm. Um, that this is everyone. Um, even my father and my mother are the same way. My dad's 82 and he has that kind of older mentality of, well, that's why you have a salary so that, you know, you work these. And it's like, well, dad, yes, back in your day, salaries covered a lot more <laughs> than they necessarily do for people of my generation, especially, you know, early 20s mid 20 people just coming into industries. There's a whole different thing going on with capitalism now, dad, but I get where you're coming from. Um, so it's, I think you're right. And that's how I feel. And it's one of the reasons I wrote this is that I often have that same reaction of if I want to do this with my time and with my work, it's my name, it's my art. I have the right to do so. And we, as an industry tend to be okay with that because we kind of justify it by calling it passion which is what I was getting at in the excerpt when I said that it's only crunch if you don't want to do it. It's, it's not crunch when it's passion. And we just say, oh, well, that's fine. That's okay. And then maybe after the fact, after it's worked out for us and we're beloved and we've made something that has uh, sold quite well, we can go, well, look, I mean, it wasn't worth it because now I, you know, I, my health is bad and it's going to take me a while to get over this. But you know, you love me now and, I, and, and I've made some money and I'm doing okay. So I can look back and say, mm, maybe it wasn't worth it. But in the time, we get caught up in this passion and we're all excited about it. And as gamers, when we see that final result, we're like, yes, this is amazing. I don't know. How did you make something so good, so pure? Well, it's because we sacrificed ourselves. We put everything we had into it. And ultimately, we did have to pay our own personal physical price. I think the issue with crunch comes from the systemic kind of crunch yeah. that comes about with big studios yeah, and exactly AAA. Right. And when there is an aspect of when you're choosing to crunch on your own, even in a big studio, that you're creating an example for other people that this is expected, that you have to do this. And this, is, and, and this should be absolutely clear. Crunch should never be mandatory unless you didn't get your job done in time because you just, you know, maybe, maybe you surfed the internet too much this week. Maybe you took too many long lunches and you just didn't put in the full amount of time you should have to reach your goal, then, hey, you need to buckle down and you need to do it. But outside of that, I mean, I agree that crunch can be a very destructive force, uh, both for people and in the industry. And we need to find better ways to manage it and also to make sure that people are getting paid for that time, if possible. Um, that becomes a whole other thing of reforming how we're looking at contracts and, and paying people and possibly even looking into unionization. But that is a thing for frankly, much, uh, uh, much smarter people to get into that conversation. I could only give my personal opinions on that. Um, nothing concrete. Um, but it's, it's always going to be complex mm. because as you said, it's art. Yeah. And as creative people, as adults, we all have that choice. I think people just come down to where they get fussy because they think about those who come in and think that this is mandatory and that they don't have a choice. And so they do it anyway. And agreed. Like, that's a horrible practice that we need to find a way to solve. Mm -hmm. I think chapter 12 is the highlight of the book for me. If you're only going to read one chapter, I don't know why you would read only one chapter. But if you do read chapter 12, it's about the development of spec ops and in a larger way about your philosophies of game development and storytelling and moral choice. So I'm wondering if you can summarize a bit of your beliefs on these topics because we talk about them a lot. And you write later in the book, first of all, your, protag your protagonist will never be more righteous than the core mechanic allows, no matter how heroic or well-intentioned. This is a person who use, uses lethal force to resolve conflict. So that's related to the dissonance you sometimes feel between the heroic character who is slaughtering civilians when you're actually controlling him or her. Which, by the way, I felt at times while reading the book, you're kind of used to reading a memoir where the author is always the good guy, right? Or you're, you're putting yourself in the author's place and you're saying, oh, I would do this. And usually the author 
does that thing that you would do and you cheer the author on. But there are times in this book where you don't come out looking very good and you're pretty, pretty honest about that. So unless you are secretly the worst person in the world in real life and you actually <laughs> did sugarcoat it, you, you didn't sugarcoat it from what I could tell. Anyway, you talk about the potential pitfall of trying to please the player and sort of surrendering that agency to the player's choice. You talk about your ambivalence about moral choices in video games, which are often very cut and dried and, and simplified. And and the idea that whatever choice the player makes is always the right choice. So there's a lot that I just brought up in this question that is not really a question yet. But I'm wondering how you managed to put those things together in spec ops or just in general, how you have reconciled them specifically maybe with the hanging men scenario in spec ops that you mentioned. Yeah. So the spec ops production was meant to be a two year long production and ended up stretching on to five years. And as we were working on that game, it began to wear not on me, but just on, on everyone on the team. Every, you know, you get six months in and then someone tells, you know, we're pushing it back, we're pushing it back. And that happens over and over and over. And you begin to almost get lost in the limbo of this game. And you begin to grow very bitter at certain things. A lot of people grow bitter at some of their coworkers. A lot of people grow bitter at the publisher that they're working for. I began to grow very bitter towards the gamer, mm. the player who was going to eventually play this game. Yeah. Because... As you're designing these things, you come in with a certain mentality, a design philosophy that is often uh, can be summarized as say yes to the player. Whatever the player wants to do, whatever any action they take in the game is, is a question. Can I do this? Can I shoot this rope? Can I shoot out this light? If I light this enemy on fire, will he run and jump in water to put himself out? And you always want, whenever possible, that answer to be yes. It's all about embracing the player uh, letting them feel as if they are in full control of this world and empowering them to do whatever can come into their mind. And with every passing year, I began to hate that uh, fictional metaphorical player more and more because all of the thing, anytime we made a change, anytime we reevaluated design, it was always, it's always for the player. Well, what's the player going to want? What's the player going to right. want? And when you, when you set out to, enter a creative field because keeping in mind I'd never set out to make games originally I just set out to be a writer you don't come into that thinking I'm going to devote my artistic life to only providing my audience with what they want and not thinking about what I'm trying to bring to the scenario and so that's where my bitterness was coming from because games are a very interesting medium in that we are created by uh, the what we make is created by a generation of, in, of invisible artists who do their best to vanish in their work and make the things that we make are designed to be entirely about the audience rather than the artist. And that's a very interesting approach to art because so much about art is about an artist digesting the world around them and, and regurgitating out through their own filter. And so with Spec Ops, we were looking at these moral choices. We wanted to put players in these situations where uh, they felt empowered, or they, and and then and then felt like the rug was being pulled out from underneath them. We uh, rather most games will do a choice, a moral choice that's you know the, a very clear good choice or bad yeah. choice. But we went in trying to tell a darker story, so we said the choice would be choice between bad or worse, and that quickly developed into a choice less about bad or worse, but more a choice that would speak to the mechanic of the game. Because for us, you know, the players coming into this game, it's a shooter. The only weapon and choice uh, tool that they have to interact with the world is a gun. So ultimately the choice becomes down to what are you going to do with the gun in your hand? Rather than presenting them with a binary choice of you will use the gun to shoot the bad guy or you will shoot the good guy. What are you going to do in general? And there's this choice in the middle of the game, the one you mentioned called the hanging man, where uh, the villain of the game, uh, Colonel John Conrad, who has... Uh, taken control of a ruined Dubai um, and has been uh, put martial law into place in order to keep people alive, uh, presents you, uh, an outsider, Captain Walker, with this choice. He has hung two men by their wrists from a street sign. One of them is one of Conrad's soldiers. The other is a civilian. The civilian stole water to give to his family, uh, which went beyond his rations. 
So someone else in the city was going to die because of that. That's a crime, punishable by death. The soldier went to apprehend the man and in the process killed the man's family who were innocent of the crime. They were simply the benefits of, of the man's theft. So the soldier has also committed a crime worthy of death. And Conrad places, you know, puts the choice to the player. Who's, who is really guilty here? I get it. We're meant to choose. Choose what? Let's get out of here. Lugo's right. We need to get as far away from this as possible. That's enough. Obviously not, because we're still here. They are guilty. But what is justice? And how would you see it dealt? This is an order, Captain. Who lives? Who dies? Judge these men. Or pay the price of insubordination. You need to decide who lives and who dies. Who has actually committed a crime. And that's the choice that we gave the player. Clearly binary. Kill the soldier, kill the civilian. But the choice that was presented to the player that's unspoken is what are you going to do with the gun in your hand? So the player can do what they're told. They can shoot the soldier or the civilian, or they can attempt to shoot the ropes that the, uh, the, the, the characters are hanging from and free them. They can shoot Conrad's snipers who are watching you from the sides. They can walk away, choose to ignore the choice altogether, or they can simply stand there and do nothing. And we don't tell the player that they have these choices. It's simply about allowing the player to ultimately say, or to not say, but to ask the question, can I do this? What happens if I shoot the rope? What happens if I shoot the snipers? Yes, something will happen. What are you going to do with the gun in your hand? So that was where we went with the, the design of these choices, of giving players unspoken ways out of these situations. But then the bitterness comes in. <laughs> In that, whereas a normal video game tries to embrace the player by telling the player, whatever thing you, whatever you choose to do, that's the right choice. And you're going to get the outcome that you want. I had very quickly reached a point where I had re rejected this kind of design mentality on Spec Ops because clearly life doesn't work out the way that you want as we were getting into the third and fourth and fifth year of this production. Right. <laughs> life often goes way the opposite of what you want. And I didn't see any reason why a game should be different. Why should a player, why should a game respect the player's wishes and give the player exactly what they want? That's not real. There's nothing true about that. That's just, again, for lack of a better word, that's just a game. And we were trying to make something that would affect the player more, actually make them feel and think about the type of entertainment that they're choosing to consume. So they can shoot the ropes and free these prisoners, but Conrad's snipers will instantly kill them before attacking the player. They can attack the snipers and start a combat, but both prisoners are going to be killed in the crossfire. If the player does nothing, Conrad's snipers will fell one of your squad mates uh, and then kill you if you continue to do nothing. Or you can make the choice that the game gives you. You can kill the soldier or you can kill the civilian. And that's those last two choices are actually the only choices that allow the player to save at least one person. There's no way that the player can come in and say, I want to save both. I'm the hero. I should be able to do that. No, you're not. You're none of those things. And why would you ever think that we would allow you to do that? Mm -hmm. The world doesn't work that way. Yeah. And players responded surprisingly well to that. Uh, we honestly, we did not know how they would react to choices like this. And I think play, we always said to ourselves, we would ask, do, do gamers want to play something that's going to make them feel bad? And ultimately, my answer always was yes. I mean, art as a whole is a way that we safely examine our emotions in a space that is protective. We listen, we watch scary films, uh, we read terrifying true uh, accounts of, of crime and, and survival, we listen to sad music to make ourselves sad. Why should games only be about empowering us and making us feel special? People want to be engaged emotionally and mentally by their entertainment, and I think people are going to react ultimately very positive to this, and they did. Thank goodness, because we've made an entire game around it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I want to end by asking you about how you were able to bring that philosophy to Star Wars Battlefront 2, which is a game that you had a hand oh. in writing 
and it comes out dun, dun, in dun. November. Jason and I are excited to see a original single-player story in a Star Wars game again for the first time in years. But you talk about in the book the franchise trap, how everyone wants to create a successful franchise that will be financially successful, that will be well-received by fans and critics. But once you do that, you get locked into making endless sequels and your creativity can be confined at times. And Star Wars is the franchisiest franchise there is. So I know you were excited about getting the opportunity to work on this game. You mentioned in the book you were really burned out and thinking of getting out of games altogether. And then this opportunity came along that you can't pass up. But we've seen how protective Lucasfilm can be of this franchise. If you step out of line, if you're a director, you will be replaced by J.J. Abrams or Ron Howard or someone. So I'm just curious. I'm sure that you can't give away too many details about the plot, but how can you try to bring that ethos of giving the player something a little different from what they're used to when we're talking about Star Wars, where everyone has very clear expectations of what they'll be getting? That I cannot answer in <laughs> any way. Uh, that any literally any answer I give would give away way too much one way or the other. And like you said, Lucas is very protective. I would love, understandably, so. to answer. Yeah. And 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 th- if this was November nineteenth, the day after it came out, I could answer ben, all Ben Lindbergh setting landmines in front of you and going, "Walk this way, my friend. Walk here. I'd like to ask you a question." I I will I will simply say that working on Star Wars has has been a joy uh, and very creatively enriching and that uh, Lucas has been wonderful collaborators and EA Motive the team making the game uh, and Dice uh, as well EA Dice have been spectacular mm-hmm. um, at no point have I have I felt constricted by working within a franchise certainly good um, they're very very collaborative but that is. Aside from praise for everyone involved, I can say nothing else. Nice. That seems very prudent, uh, very wise. <laughs> smart man. <laughs> well, let me close with an alternative question then. You mentioned in the book, you say, if you've ever wondered why so many games have bad writing, it's because developers don't usually have a dedicated writer. And you call it writing in reverse. As you mentioned earlier, you'll come in in the middle of a project and almost retcon the story into the game that's already there. And you mentioned in the book that that is changing to a certain extent, but A, I wonder why that is, and B, I wonder to what extent you think it will change. There's another part in the book where your dad asks you what a programming language is, and you respond, (laughs) beyond a series of numbers and commands, I don't know, (laughs) which, uh, me neither. But yeah, (laughs) I, I was curious about that just because, you know, you're working in games. I wonder whether it's an advantage to understand games on that level, just so when you're writing, you know whether this is a feasible scene for programmers to pull off. But my theory is that you can't really fake programming, right? I mean, you and I can't program poorly. We just can't program at all. Whereas anyone can convince themselves that they're a writer, right? You can write sentences. They might be terrible, but they're sentences, which is at least a little bit better than than programming where I could not know where to begin. No, you're absolutely right. And that's where a lot of the this aversion to having a full-time writer on staff comes from is that it's hard to convince someone that they don't know how to write if they think they know how to write. Mm -hmm. And um, if the game ends up being fun, even if the story that uh, someone wrote is terrible, people are going to love the game. And so now you've you've doubly convinced them that, yes, they know how to write. Um, So you you end up bucking up against that quite a bit as a writer. And to be fair, you know, like games for so long did not need a dedicated writer. Um, Like when you go all the way back to like a, a game such as like Donkey Kong or Mario, you know, Mario uh, was a construction guy in Donkey Kong because he was simply because he was climbing up scaffolding. He was a plumber in Super Mario Brothers because he was going down pipes. That was the extent of where these narratives came from of, well, we we designed this into the game, so what does that kind of say about him? Well, I guess it says it's a plumber. Okay, we'll do that. That's fine. Right. And Mario was a plumber for the next 30 years until I think a couple of weeks ago when Nintendo finally <laughs> yes. said he's not a plumber anymore. I know, I agree with you. I, I disagree with this decision. I think it was a terrible decision. I mean, if he's not a plumber, why is he constantly wearing overalls? You don't see tennis players doing that. Clearly, he's dedicated to the craft of plumbing. So I digress. Um, But, you know, we've grown out of 
a engineer programmer based medium. And so ultimately programming and design are the things that games started out as bare bones. Those have almost a certain type of seniority. It's only as games have become more cinematic uh, in the last few generations and narrative and story and voice acting and cutscenes have grown more prevalent that dedicated writers have become a necessity. And slowly teams are beginning to turn over to understand that, right, right, we really do. I could maybe write something that's passable, but someone who understands writing as a craft and understands the structure of story and how uh, characters would react in certain situations rather than just, you know, feeding them lines, they're going to make something more meaningful out of this. And so we need that on the team. A lot of that comes from having these, I mentioned earlier, creative directors who can write. These people who have come up in game design and have come up leading teams who also have that talent, they've been able to help change that mindset. You've got, you know, Amy Hennig with the Uncharted series. You've got Ken Levine with Bioshock, Neil Druckmann with The Last of Us, uh, the Hauser brothers working in the Grand Theft Auto games and Red Dead Redemption, one of my, you know, favorite games possibly ever. Um, Those are the games that not only convince players that story is important, but convince developers that story is worth dedicating their time and effort into. And you know, these things kind of trickle down. You know, someone does something amazing, everyone wants to jump on that bandwagon and try it too. <laughs> we're getting there. It's growing. And you're seeing a lot of movement happening in, in the indie space where we're getting very rich and unique and experimental narrative experiences. And as more of those come out, AAA games are going to be learning lessons. They're going to be treating indie as basically free R&D going, wow, oh, that I never thought that that could work. That totally works. Let's take something like that. Let's scale it up into the type of game we're making and see if we can do it. We're, as a species, we're drawn to story. Everything that we experience, even if it's just internalized, is turned into a story in some way. We are creatures of story. So we're always going to be drawn to that. And we're always going to think that we can do it, even if we don't necessarily have the professional skills. And I'll certainly never tell anyone who thinks they can write to not give it a chance. They absolutely should. You should go out and do it. But like you said, I can't sit down and program a game. If you've brought me on to write your game and you're the programmer, you know, I won't won't come in and mess with your code uh, if you don't, you know, rewrite the script while I'm out to lunch. You know, it's that kind of a thing. And, you know, we will work together in harmony in the end and we will be very happy. Um, but it's getting there. And I think it's exciting for me to see games trying new thing, new narrative things, because as a gamer, that's what I want. I've been playing games where I'm the hero my entire life. I live with myself every day. My career is sitting in a room by myself, talking to myself, putting it on paper and hoping someone wants to read it. I don't need more of myself. I want stories and experiences that transport me into the shoes of someone very different from me. I want to go places and do things and be challenged as a person Mm -hmm. and as a character in the game, because that's how I'm entertained and that's how I'm going to grow. And I think it's how we're all going to grow. And all of that's going to come down to embracing narrative in a way that games are just beginning to do in the AAA space. And once it finally fully happens across the board, it's going to be phenomenal. We're not going to get games that are just about uh, player empowerment and uh, you know being Batman and punching people and driving around in your car or being uh, a cowboy you know, and shooting people in the middle of town, Red Dead Redemption. We're going to find games where when you put down the control at the end of it, you are hopeful. You feel empowered as yourself to go out in the world and to believe in the world, to believe that things are going to be okay. That's that next step, finding a way to create a gameplay narrative experience that carries over into the real world life and how you're feeling when you put that controller down that isn't just negative, that isn't just uh, invigorating, but that's hopeful and fulfilling. Uh, and I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Well, you can find Walt's website at walt-williams.com. You can find him on Twitter at Walt D. Williams and send him questions about Battlefront 2 that he can't answer for a couple more months. And you can go get the book right now. It's called Significant Zero, Heroes, Villains, and the Fight for Art and Soul in Video Games. Walt, thank you very much for coming on. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks Thank for you. Me. All right. So that will do it for today. You were right. Milton the Corgi has not said a word not, as far as I'm aware. Anything? Quiet. Milton? Last no, chance? Got nothing Any to say. final thoughts? No? All right. I've heard you at other times when I didn't want you to speak, <laughs> but That's now you is. got nothing. So we'll be back on Friday. You've been listening to Achievement Oriented, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. <laughs>